As anyone who has driven across Virginia knows, there are hundreds of memorials in stone and metal that commemorate the Civil War in Virginia. Tablets, monoliths, statues, it runs the gamut in terms of their form. And they stand in cemeteries and town squares, in front of courthouses, and on battlefields. Until recently, the task of finding a specific memorial among the many that inhabit the state was often a hit-or-miss proposition. With an illustrated guide to Virginia's Confederate monuments, our speaker presents the first comprehensive handbook of this legacy of America's great national crisis, and that legacy here in Virginia. He also reveals what these monuments say about Southerners and Virginians and how they came to understand, bless you, the traumatic experience of the Civil War. Timothy Sidor teaches English at Bronx Community College of the City University of New York. Along with his most recent book on Confederate monuments, Professor Sidor has published a number of fiction and nonfiction articles in literary magazines and academic journals. So please join me in welcoming Timothy Sidor, who will speak to us about Virginia's Confederate monuments. Well, good afternoon. afternoon. I am pleased to be in Richmond, and I am delighted to be here. And I want to thank Nelson Langford for arranging this talk, and Paul Levengood for the kind introduction. And I want to thank you for being here as well. I've been studying Virginia Civil War monuments for some years. I've done so, I think, for three reasons. First, I was born just after World War II. The war, the shadow of the war, a part of something in which I did not participate, but in which so many people around me did. They spoke of the war, they lived the war, they took the war's reality for granted, and I did not. I knew them well, but I did not know what they knew. And that intrigues me beyond measure, as if I am part of something that I cannot fully grasp. So too, the American Civil War, falls on all of us as a shadow. It made us, it made this nation what it is today, but it occurred before we could live and know it. That's one reason. The second reason is my professional training in literature, in English, in rhetoric. I trust that words mean something, that words mediate, they connect us. In the beginning was the word, is the way the Gospel of John begins. Words, logos in the Greek, bring order to the world. They serve to mediate between the past and present. And Civil War monuments, five words inscribed on this plaque at this field, 25 words on that field, bring order to the landscape. They give meaning and context to it. There's a third reason. As a runner, virtually all my adult life, I have long been someone who takes the measure of the American landscape on a daily practical basis. This hill, that rise and fall of the landscape, and so too when I look at the Virginia landscape, I look on how they, the generation that fought the war, they were here. How they looked out on this ground, this city, this stream, this hillock, that range of mountains or river or stream or valley. You can change the landscape, of course. I've been to the Chantilly battlefield grounds near Washington, D.C. 
They are unrecognizable for the engagement that occurred there in 1862. I know how you can obliterate the past with asphalt and a mall and office buildings and motels. And as an active member of the Civil War Trust, I believe in preservation. But Faulkner is right. The past is not dead. It's not even past. Or as Civil War veteran Joshua Chamberlain said, quote, in great deeds, something abides. On great fields, something stays. I first visited Stonewall Cemetery in Winchester in 1990. And the impression made on me remains to this day. And in fact, it changed the course of my professional life. Um, at Hollywood, and Blanford cemeteries, as perhaps you all know, thousands of unmarked graves form a valley of the dead ranged along the slopes. 18,000 dead at Hollywood, 30,000 at Blanford. The dead form an enormous, affecting, absent present. Present, but unmarked as individuals. At Stonewall Cemetery is different. Stonewall is just over the crest of a small ridge as one approaches. The effect of the ridge is to obscure the site from the visitor until it is very close, and then for the visitor to see ranks of inscribed tombstones emerge, so to speak, rank on rank, in order, by state, as if they are in motion toward the visitor. Hundreds of them, just as they might have been when the Third Battle of Winchester was fought, in part on the, these same grounds in 1864. It was that fixed motion, the monuments and the phalanx of headstones that contributes to an atmosphere that is, to me, as melancholy and evocative as any Civil War battlefield or Confederate cemetery in Virginia. There's only 3,000 men buried there, but every known grave is marked with a headstone, and headstones stand row upon row, name upon name, in close order. The uneven ground individualizes the markers. Some are cocked one way, others a different way. And no doubt they were evenly installed originally, but time and topography have individualized them. They stand at various angles, as any assembly of individuals would be. It was those men, those markers, that bring me here this afternoon. And so today, for a few minutes, I'm going to talk to you about words and images and vengeance. Deo vendici, God will avenge the model of the Confederacy, and a theme of Southern monuments. My presentation draws from my research, photographing and analyzing the sites and texts of, of about 400 courthouse or cemetery memorials and tombstones taken from every county in the Commonwealth. So we are going to take a very short tour of Virginia, and we're going to talk about a few of these sites. We'll begin here in Richmond. And here in Richmond, I don't have to tell you much uh, I don't have to tell you how much there is to remember, record, and declare about the war. The challenge each monument committee or town or sculptor had was to evoke great meaning in a small, finite bronze or marble or granite space. Here are the preliminaries. In four years, the war took 600,000 lives in a nation with a pre-war population of about 31 million people. Virginia was a reluctant member of the Confederate States of America. It was among the last states to, to secede from the Union. Secession, however justified, carried a high price. To put the death of some 600,000 men in today's context, 
that it's the equivalent of a country of this size, the United States, losing 6 million men across four years, or almost 30,000 men per week, 4,000 men per day. The Virginia campaigns were the largest ever in the Americas, 26 major battles along with some 400 other clashes. And though the Confederacy lasted but a short time as a nation, it yield, fielded one of the finest armies ever. Yet that army met its end symbolically, if not militarily, in Virginia. The l war left Virginia, left us, with these. The story of a nation and its army told in these monuments, these sites, these places. It's easy to be chauvinistic about this subject. It's easy to claim that the statues of soldiers are not always artful, that they look stiff or frozen, that the inscriptions seem terse and routine. It does not help that mass production of some statues meant that many Confederate soldiers look virtually identical to their Union counterparts or that they all look basically the same. I don't find these arguments convincing. I think the same claim can be made, can be applied to Civil War battles, so many, so similar, or to American cities, so many, so similar, or to luggage in airport baggage carousels, <laughs> or to just about anything that is complex, plural, and unfamiliar. I'll grant you that there are patterns and trends in monuments, but there are no types. Begin with an individual, F. Scott Fitzgerald puts it this way in one of his short stories, and, and quote, and before you know it, you find that you created a type. Begin with a type and you find that you have created nothing. There are no types, there are no plurals, he writes. They are different, the monuments are different, if only slightly, if only in setting, ornamentation, inscription, sponsorship, or maker. They are as distinct as the communities they represent. Those differences, deserve attention. The challenge is to recognize the distinctions and opportunity they offer to understand how a generation came to terms with a war whose meaning is still debated. It is not an academic issue. It's, it is, it's, it's not just history. This was flesh and blood. It was arguably quasi-religious. As a body of rhetoric, the 10,000 word text inscribed on markers across Virginia serves as a collected text, a testimony collected, that I collected, um, across the 40,000 square miles of Virginia, county to county, city to city. And what is the text saying? Well, it's variously cryptic and revealing. Sometimes it's hopeful, sometimes it's vexing, uh, sometimes it's banal, and sometimes it's provocative. Phrases like our Confederate soldiers or our Confederate he heroes seem clear but look more closely. Our Confederate dead, the women of the United Daughters of the Confederacy, declare on the granite shaft at Marshall, Virginia. The monument was dedicated in 1928, and the women claimed the dead for their own, even 63 years after the war's end. That was my goal in writing this book, which took me all over the states. Okay? This is the driving ambition. How close can you get to the past? Imagine that, 63 years later, they claim them as their own. And my answer, how close can you get? My answer is that it's as, as close as words. And spoken words are as close as one's life breath. Over and over again, I was impressed by the attempts 
to effect a reconciliation between intimate, private mourning and abstract ideology, between the loss of child, parent, friend, or sibling in the war, and the words, the rhetorical effort to rationalize that loss and sustain adherence to the lost, clause, lost cause and other ideologies that emerged from that war. I was impressed, but I should not be. Uh, rhetorician Richard Reaver writes that, quote, every use of speech, oral and written, exhibits an attitude, and an attitude implies an act. Every utterance is an attempt to make others see the world in a particular way and to accept the values implicit in that point of view. Every utterance, every last word and image. So let's, let's look. Let's go to Hollywood Cemetery. Let's look at the granite 90-foot Egyptian revival pyramid to the Confederate dead erected in 1869, the largest Confederate monument in Virginia. Very large. The inscription, in contrast, is utterly plain. A simple, dramatically understated tribute, Numenae et Patria Asto, which from Latin would be translated as united we stand before the gods and country to the Confederate dead. For all the size and scale of this monument, it comes down to this, to them, to the dead, the Confederate dead. It's a shocking, understated tribute. This is not always how they were conceived, however. Did they always die for the Confederacy, so to speak? Not necessarily. The Lancaster Courthouse Obelisk, 1872, one of the first courthouse monuments, and here, the Confederacy is not even mentioned. Even the war is not mentioned. The focus is on sons who, gave, quote, gave their lives for the cause of their native state and the South. They fought for Virginia. They fought for the South. At Stonewall Cemetery, the Virginia obelisk, dedicated June 6, 1879, is in memory of the 398 Virginia soldiers lying in this cemetery who fell in defense of constitutional liberty and the sovereignty of their state from 1861 to 1865. Not all mem monuments are so spare, of course. Some are downright verbose. Many, many have rosters of service units, veterans, those killed in services, survivors or casualties, the Hillsville Courthouse Monument, Southwest Virginia, lists 22 engagements in battles from Gettysburg to Cotton Mountain and inscribes the county's contribution of 16 companies of infantry and cavalry. The Fincastle Courthouse Monument, 1901, lists 12 companies, an array of reserves and civilian contributions. It honors the women of Botetourt County for their constant encouragement and steadfast devotion. These are the men and the women who built the monuments, who they are, what they did. This is what prevails. King George, 1867, lists 97 names of soldiers. Front Royal, 1911, lists 600 names. The Tappahannock Monument, 1909, lists 772 names. The Nottoway Courthouse Monument, 1893, lists 532 names, and 
the Hanover Courthouse Monument, just north of us, 1914, lists 1,119 names. They are sometimes offered up as revolutionaries, these men. In 1876, the nation's centennial year, the Harrisonburg Monument claims that the Confederacy represented a second American Revolution, a second war of independence. Confederates were radical traditionalists. They were true patriots. The Egyptian revival obelisk declares that the Southern lives, quote, vindicated the principles of 1776. Makes these claims, quote, success is not patriotism. Defeat is not Let's see. Defeat is not rebellion. Affirming the faith of a shadow nation, lost cause, community of defiance, dissent, and belonging. There is here a vision of a promised land confederacy. The war was not a rebellion. It was not even necessarily lost. The men stood for the principles on which the nation was founded. And in that cause, they died for their country. Success is not patriotism. Defeat is not rebellion. Therefore, this monument was erected, the Ladies' Memorial Association, in grateful remembrance of the gallant Confederate soldiers who, who lie here. They died in defense of the rights of the South from 1861 to 1865. 1876, in memory of men who, with their lives, vindicated the principles of 1776. And this, the conclusion, the Southern soldier, sorry, it says Confederate, it's Southern, the Southern soldier died for his country. Success is not patriotism. Defeat is not rebellion. And that stand is taken in various ways in various monuments across the South over the next 40 years. The cause was just. Look, for example, at this city cemetery memorial at Warrington, dedicated on May 30th, 1877. Quote, Confederate dead, 600. Virginia's daughters to Virginia's defenders. Here on Virginia, they sleep, as sleeps a hero on his unsurrendered shield. God will judge the right. And this, the conclusion, go tell the Southerners, Southerns is what they say, Southerns, we lie here for the right of their states. God will judge the right. I want you to hear an excerpt from the dedication address this time, May 30th, 1877. This is from ex-Confederate General Wade Hampton's dedication address. Quote, why should we admit we are in the wrong? We believe we have truth on our side. Let us then assert and maintain our faith, and God will in his own good time make it manifest that we were right. If we were wrong in our struggle, then was the Declaration of Independence in 76 a terrible mistake and the revolution to which it led a palpable crime? Washington should be stigmatized as traitor and beg Benedict Arnold canonized as patriot. If the principles which justified the first revolution were true in 1776, they were no less true in that of 1861. The success of the former can add not one jot or tittle to the abstract truth of the principles which gave it birth, nor can the failure of the latter destroy one particle of those ever-living principles. If Washington was a patriot, Lee cannot have been a rebel. If the grand enunciation of the truths of the Declaration of Independence 
made Jefferson immortal, the observance of them cannot make Davis a traitor, unquote. This is Danville, Green Hill Cemetery. Similar declaration here. The 1878 monument here, Green Hill Cemetery, upholds this conviction. It calls itself a memorial tribute of Virginia's daughters to the fallen brave. And it concludes with this statement. Patriots know that these fell in the effort to establish just government and perpetuate constitutional liberty. Who thus die will live in lofty example. Monuments of the 1890s and into the first years of the 20th century are somewhat more sentimental and celebratory. At the Chatham Courthouse Monument of 1899, the heroes of the past are crowned with a, quote, laurel wreath of memory. And notice here, if you will, how the, how the Confederates are now being consigned to history. But still there's this commission, quote, go tell the listening worlds afar of those who died for truth and right, unquote. Now it could, and I, I agree with this, there's, there's echoes of the inscription of, um, of the monument at Thermopylae in, in Greece, made famous by Thucydides. But notice the missionary fervor, the veritable secular great commission. We are called to take the mission, the message across the world. Why, quote, listening worlds afar are waiting. Let's go back up to Winchester, Virginia, and the state of Louisiana monument at Stonewall Cemetery. In this monument, dedicated on Independence Day, the 4th of July, 1896, we are informed that the very soil that wraps the, the Louisiana dead is sanctified. Quote, keep holy the sod. It goes further. These are, quote, hearts that never baseness knew, unquote. Note, too, that their cause was holy and that a kind of absolution is confirmed upon the Louisiana Confederate soldier. Quote, they died for the principles upon which all true republics are founded. These are, of course, extraordinary claims. And if you'll travel with me to the 1913 arch at Blandford Cemetery, Petersburg, behind it is the largest mass grave site in Virginia, and surely one of the largest in North America. Some 28,000 Confederate soldiers are interred in 13 acres. It's a remarkable, evocative expanse. But on this entryway, there's a glimpse of eternity and redemption on the arch standing at the entryway. It reads, quote, there comes a voice that awakes my soul. And as it says there, in addition, the dead are awaiting the reveille to judge by the, the, the inscription. Monuments like this extol the dead and encourage the living. This is what they're supposed to do, but they do something else. They posit a threshold of resurrection, a lost cause that shall yet be won. They dwell in possibility, to paraphrase Emily Dickinson. We could make this appear as if there was a smooth arc of development from a funereal era to glorification to reconciliation. Civil War monuments are often classified by the year they were erected. The years 1861, 1889 have been called the bereavement and funereal era. Those from 1890 to 1920 as the rec reconciliation or celebration era. And those from 1920 to the present as the commemorative era. 
The categories are useful, but this is deceptively neat. For example, I use the term American Civil War to describe the events of 1861-1865, but the war between the states or other descriptions may be more accurate or preferred. And the official term for the conflict is the War of the Rebellion. In fact, Civil War is rarely used on Virginia monuments. In fact, it only occurs twice in all the monuments that I, that I examined. The various terms have meaning and nuance. Second War of Independence, the war between the states. The Stanton River Battlefield Tablet, erected in 1955, does not describe a war between national governments, Union troops opposing Confederate soldiers, the Federals versus Confederates, no. It describes a war between states, citizen soldiers of their respective states, Virginia infantry, 296 men, and Virginia citizens, patriots, if you will, not Confederates. 642 citizens taking arms against Pennsylvania and New York cavalry. Here, citizens are credited, praised, for taking the initiative in defeating, invading, or marauding federal forces, or state forces in this case, as with others, especially in the South Side, without mentioning that the opposing forces are in federal service. So I use the term Confederate monuments or soldiers broadly, but many monument inscriptions deliberately avoid the use of the word. They fought for their states. They fought for the South. They were Southerns, as they say. They fought for liberty. They fought for constitutional principles. The terms are nuanced. They are precise. There is more to this. There are deeper levels of complexity in the use of terms like constitutional rights or the claim that the conflict was a second war of independence. The phrase lost cause only occurs twice in the, mon the 400 monuments that I looked at. And slavery is never mentioned in Virginia monumentation. The word is never used. It should be noted that constitutional rights may very well have served as a kind of euphemism for it. And there's a point. And sla slavery was, of course, constitutionally upheld before the war. I should add, however, that Union monuments do not mention slavery either. So in fact, what is said or not said, the absent presence of opposing truths could be a separate study in, a, in itself. In addition, the religious dimension of the war should not be overlooked. Many, though not a majority of these, that generation were religious people waging a war, interpreting their history, and invoking sacred scripture to justify the war. In the case of the Confederacy, Contemporary historian Stephen Woodworth writes that, quote, Confederates were sure they were right. To many Southerners, the Confederate effort was not a matter of constitutional principle nor slavery, but took on a strong religious significance. Fighting for the Confederacy was an act of devotion to God, unquote. Of Maryland soldiers, as we see here, buried at Winchester, it is said that they, quote, came for conscience sake and died for right. They are, quote, alike in blood, alike in faith. Unquote. The Mount Jackson, Virginia Cemetery Monument invokes Psalm 39, quote, and now, Lord, what I wait for, my hope is in thee, unquote. The Woodstock Monument declares that the Confederate dead are, quote, cast down but not destroyed, unquote, signing Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And faithful unto death, cited at Farmville here, and also at the Marion Courthouse, is taken from the Book of Revelation. 
the letter to the faithful church at Smyrna, which intimates that that faithful community's trials have a divine purpose and will be redeemed. They concede defeat, some of them, but they do not give up. Berryville's monument stands 20 feet above the courthouse grounds. The eight-foot-tall soldier is called a son of Clark on the inscription. He is manifestly not a Confederate, and his cause is a matter of principle, the rights of the states and constitutional government, not the Confederacy. He has his hat in his hand and a pensive countenance, not unlike the Mount Jackson and Alexandria soldiers, all of whom are apparently based on a period painting by John A. Elder titled Appomattox. He has no weapon, and a contemporary account describes him as an, quote, heroic figure, eight foot high, standing with arms folded, with bare head and eyes cast down. And yet there is something of hope in the expression of the face, a hope which has found fruition in the part the soldiers of the lost cause have played in, that, in the progress and advancement of our united country since the close of the war, unquote. But defiance is common most notably in the national model, Deo Vendici, God Will Avenge, cited on at least 10 monuments. Mention could also be made of the Emporia Monument, the 1910 tribute, quote, to the Confederate soldiers of Greensville County, who in defense of rights they believed sacred, it's one of my favorite inscriptions, in defense of rights they believed sacred, took up arms against the invaders of Virginia. The glory dies not, and the grief is past. So perhaps I'm presenting a case of political correctness run amok. I, I, I don't glorify them, I don't agree with them, but I respect them for taking a stand. I respect them for their sacrifice. I respect the loyalties and the affections they manifest to one another. I respect them for their passions. I respect the men for their effusive, affecting tributes to women. The 1902 Buchanan Monument is given over to our loving, self-sacrificing Confederate women. And there it is to this day. And Hanover Courthouse is dedicated to her Confederate soldiers and to her noble women who love them. The women who love them is what it says. I mentioned this inscription to a woman in a Virginia bed and breakfast where we, where we stay often, and the woman was recently widowed after a 50-year marriage. You can imagine her response to that kind of affection. She was quite moved by this, not by the war or the Confederacy, but by the glimmer of affection shown or evinced here by men who had passed beyond the grave. On that note, I need to mention the role that women play in the monument movement. Women's groups initiated and sustained the fundraising for most monument projects, often for decades. They organized the searches for and burials or reburials of the dead, headstones, the establishment of cemeteries, decorating of graves. They came to control virtually all aspects of the process, conception, initiation, fundraising, monument design, and dedication ceremonies. They blended food, fun, tears, and solemn oaths, solemnity and festivity, restraint and extravagance. For a country that was and still is predominantly Protestant, and at a time when prejudice against Catholicism was not uncommon, their monuments invoked the poetry of Roman Catholic priests surprisingly often. The poetry of Father Abraham, Abraham Ryan, known as, quote, the poet priest of the lost cause, appears on several monuments. So too does the poetry of Father 
John Bannister Tabb. Some writers note that the pathos and symbolism that surround this movement could only be encompassed by the theatrical rhetoric and iconography of Roman Catholic traditions, as opposed to the relatively spare and restrained Protestantism more common in Virginia. That's a deeper study. <clears throat> but there was something worshipful, ritualized, and sacrificial, and thus ultimately sacred about the cause. Our mothers, wives, daughters, and sisters. I want to focus on one aspect of this, <clears throat> uh, the Confederate soldier, the statue of a soldier. Marion Courthouse, Southwest Virginia. Madison, looking west towards the, uh, towards the mountain. Richmond, very familiar subject, I imagine, for this audience, of course. And Covington Courthouse, <clears throat> out west on off I-64. This one, Low Moor, very obscure, uh, off of I-64, way west of here. And Warm Springs, out far west. There are nearly 100 of these statues in Virginia, the most recent erected in 2006. And they may turn out to be the longest lasting public legacy of the monument movement. The pose of the Confederate soldier statue on a pedestal was neither aloof nor abstract. He was not saintly. Many of them look relaxed, unmartial, unheroic, at ease. At times, they can even appear to be slouching at parade rest, usually with a kind of rumpled appearance. They had an aura of dignity and endurance, historian Gaines M. Foster says of them. But otherwise, they hardly seemed suited for a war memorial. He usually stood at ease with his rifle resting on the ground and his arms resting on it. He seemed anything but a dashing, daring knight, and in fact, hardly seemed martial at all. But they are the deathless dead. According to the Washington Courthouse Monument, they are the quick and the dead, both living and dead. Quote, dead yet still they speak, according to the Stannardsville Courthouse inscription. Our Confederate heroes, quote, sleeping but glorious. They are the Confederate dead still living, at least by the power of rhetoric and images. It might even be said that the soldier sculpture on the pedestal left a veritable mount of cavalry on the county square. It's not intentional, I don't think, but the parallels are there. Suffering and sacrifice were embodied in a representative individual who's raised up in public space, who transcends life, who transcends cause and country, and is even, and who is even sacrificed, but endures. The slouched, casual demeanor of some of the soldiers undercuts or subdues the lofty tributes inscribed below him. But he means to say, and he is confident of his place, it's the University of Virginia, Charlottesville, he transcends by his sacrifice the lost cause, the military defeat, and the life and death of the Confederacy. So two themes are pervasive in this rhetoric. The first is engraving the years, 1861, 1865, defining the distinct place and time of the Confederacy. The inscription 1861, 1865 is almost a constant of the inscriptions that I uh, researched. 
It's a reminder of the physical, tangible history that the war was. The second is the sacrifice and service and deaths of so many men. In that sacrifice, there's a kind of blood sacrament that is commemorated, a veritable American Eucharist. The ceremony of dedication with the promise that the monument would last the ages, ages was an anointing, a bonding of mortality and immortality, past and present. Charles Reagan Wilson observes that many, quote, clergymen compared the sacrificial, redemptive deaths of the Confederates to the passion of Christ. One minister reminded his audience of war veterans of, quote, the memories of your Gethsemane, unquote, and, quote, the agonies of your Golgotha, unquote. Another compared the fate of the South near the war's end to, quote, the blessed Savior who passed from gloomy Gethsemane to the judgment hall through the fearful ordeal being forsaken by his friends and then on to the bloody cross, unquote. There is more to the subject, of course. <clears throat> There's the economy of language, how cryptic, how concise the inscriptions are, which originally moved me to visit these sites. The designs, <clears throat> Egyptian revival obelisk or pyramid, the Christian cross, the Greek enconium or column, the American citizen soldier. There was the fact that I realized that I overlooked one site when the manuscript was already in place. <clears throat> the Ream Station Battlefield Monument to North Carolinians near Petersburg, which is nearly 1,000 miles round trip from New York. Now, I was not obliged to go. Nobody said go. But I confess that it brought out in me the same rationalizations and selfish interest that I'm sure afflicted others during the war. If you'll forgive me, I thought, why go? Okay. Only a few thousand men were involved, involved, only a few hundred casualties, and the battle was not decisive. One more battle, a few more dead, but I went. I thought of, frankly, Union soldiers whose three-year term of service was up in 1864 and who were asked to stay to risk their lives to go back to, to Virginia to finish the job, and they did. And I thought of Confederate soldiers who stayed on when others deserted, who wrote with confidence, even late in the war, of how uh, the faith they had in their army and their eventual triumph, and they stayed. So how could I not go back? So, so I went. So research, research, of course, is not a neat process. History is not always clear. It draws one in. It is both attractive and repellent. It is not well established. It reminds the speaker of John Keegan's observation that, the war, that war brings out all the contradictions of human behavior, enormous courage, enormous folly, foolishness, responsibility in the service of foolishness, cowardice in the face of responsibility, genius, murder. Historian Alan Clarks writes that as a student of war, you learn that incompetence, corruption, brutality, and waste are inseparable and take their toll. I could, take it, I could take it further. In fact, I would. The war is not well established. That is, it is not neat history. It has no closure. Is a, clause, is a cause worth living for, worth dying for? Yes. Is it true that you're not ready, ready to live until you're ready to die? I have read as much. 
but that too was part of what the war was about. The twin tasks of the epitaph, the monument, are to extol the living and to, and to exhort, excuse me, to extol the dead and exhort the living, as Gary Wills reminds us. And this too was the war. For the record, my Southern Studies research has always resulted in my return to my college in the Bronx, to New York, past Yankee Stadium. Uh, both of them, I must say, of all things, for a while, when they were tearing down one and building the other one. And I walk up Burnside Avenue to my campus. My office looks out on Sedgwick Avenue, and yes, both are Civil War generals. And Sheridan, Grant, Lincoln, and Garfield are street names near my home. So this is the war's legacy. We think we know history, and, and we do. We've lived through some of it. But some of us only see the vaguest patterns in our own history, and only in retrospect, and perhaps not even then. I know that the history behind these monuments is contentious and provocative. If slavery was a principal cause of the war, it is also true that many men and women, north and south, were simply caught up in events over which they had very limited control and that there were many, as many motivations to fight on one side or another as there are monuments in Virginia, ranging from the personal to the altruistic, and from the noblest to the basest. In the monuments, I see deified humanity and a blood sacrifice. Much of my field work exceeded the light in the day and carried into the night. It was then that I was most aware of the import of the mute testimony left to us in marble, granite, or bronze. I realized how enduring, majestic, and yet majestically insufficient these monuments are to tell the story of what happened. So I don't intend to glorify them. One of Robert E. Lee's lamentations during and after the war was the failure of the population to fully mobilize, to fully rally to the cause of the Confederacy. And so we are confronted with a people, a generation, who fought for a cause that was fatally, partially, justified, a fatal, ironic half-truth. I respect men and women who know they're going to lose something they're fighting for and go on fighting, perhaps because we too are in a fight against mortality, a running fight that we engage for better or worse across our lifetimes. I look to better things after death, but I understand the perspective of historian George Stewart, who writes that we might approach the war as a microcosm, quote, much of human nature good and bad, displays itself on a battlefield. In a sense, even the war may stand for all of human life. I also think that, as Stephen Crane wrote, we don't always get to choose our battlefields. Sailor's Creek. Mount Jackson. It's Piedmont Battlefield in the Shenandoah. and Farmville Monument. I want to give the last word to someone who lived through the war. Union, Union officer Charles S. Wainwright recognized early on that the war would be clouded with distorted or self-serving judgments. In 1864, he wrote that the objects of the war had completely changed, that the, quote, real question of the salvation of the Union has been so completely laid over by politics that it is only by digging deep down that I can find the object for which I alone am fighting. His conclusion, quote, the Almighty alone 
knows what will be the real issue to the country of this contest, unquote. And on that note, I thank you for listening. We have mics coming around if, there's a, if there are questions. Thank you very much, sir. Would you yes. comment on the condition of the monuments as you found them and on uh, plans for their continued care? The, um, to my surprise, the monument movement still goes on. There's still monuments going up. The care varies from community to community. Uh, some cities are very attentive to the monuments in their, uh, in their care and very responsible. Others are, as you can imagine, neglected. So there's, there's a, it's a lot of variety. In the same way, the research that I did, some monuments, very well documented, excellent documented, original typed you know, letters from, and others had nothing and knew nothing about what was there. So it varies a great deal. Good question. I enjoyed your lecture. Yes. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, my question, you mentioned that one of the statues had his arms folded and some of them looked like they were standing at rest. I noticed, I went down Trinic Ironworks yeah. and the pictures there showed some of the Confederate soldiers. They had their hands, hands stuck in there. Right. What is, what is that about? What does that signify? That's their homage, that's the right word, to uh, Napoleon. Yes, I realized Napoleon did it, but I was like, oh, they just doing it, copying him. But, yeah. but I was thinking maybe they were like hiding a weapon. I didn't know no, about no, Napoleon, no, hiding a weapon. That's their way of giving tribute to the man. Yeah. They if you go to the courthouses along the edge of Virginia, but in West Virginia, you'll notice that there are Confederate statues that are in those courthouses. The question I would have is, since that was not a Confederate state when they put those statues up, how did they get those statues erected? We don't have that for 20 minutes, but um, they, it varies a good deal. Okay. It varies a good deal. Uh, and some towns are ambiguous. They will have a statue but it's not clear which side the soldier is on. And so it, it really reflects the ambiguity, that that, or ambivalence, if you will, that the loyalties were uh, in that state. The uh, Berkeley Springs, I think, has Confederates on one side and Union soldiers, list, you know, on just one side and then Confederate on that side. And then there are counties that we discussed earlier there that have uh, Confederate soldiers in West Virginia. Lewisburg, I know, is one. Confederate soldier statue is there. Um, and that's, I think it's the artificial boundaries. Southwest Virginia, as you go further west, very, you know, it just, it peters out. Uh, there, a lot of the counties out there have no monumentation at all. And I, I'm certain, of course, that, that reflects the um, sentiments of the population. There Did I answer other, yeah. There are other countries that suffered uh, major bloody civil wars. Yes. Is, 
memorialization by the losing side unique to no. America? <laughs> I think it's pretty unusual. Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, as I make the case that they don't necessarily say that they lost. There, there are a couple references. They will, there's, a, as I recall, two references to the lost cause. Um, but other monuments, as you read them, they make no reference to defeat or lack of success. They did what they set out to do, which is to, to defend their state or to defend the rights or to defend themselves. And in that, they will not claim defeat. Yes. Uh, on the West Virginia issue, um, probably about five or six counties at Border Virginia were predominantly Confederate. Right. Hampshire, Hardy, Pendleton, yes. Greenbrier, Monroe, and Mercer, just to name a few. Yes. And, and probably a lot in Berkeley and Jefferson. Uh, let me say that somebody mentioned that we were defeated. Well, my mother's only been dead for five years. Yes. And my grandmother had been dead somewhat long. They never acknowledged no. at all that there was such a thing as a defeat. No. Yes. I was wondering whether there's been any opposition to these Confederate monuments, uh, particularly among blacks. Uh, we've had some issue about that right here in Richmond. But you, when you think about it, you know, if, if Germans erected statutes to Nazi soldiers, I mean, there would be a big outcry around the world. And yet, uh, uh, from I haven't seen uh, much controversy about that here. They're surprisingly benign, if I may say. I mean, they, I guess they look tougher than they are. Um, it's like a dog that says they'd never bite. But they, they, they have such a benign presence on the, on the landscape. People don't notice. They don't notice. And they don't look warlike. A lot of the monuments just don't look like they're threatening. I don't, one of the experiences I had was, was photographing county seat mo monument at Nottaway, and it's broad daylight. I'm there photographing it and looking at the inscription, and this, this African-American man who's working on the grounds came up to me and asked me, what is this? Like, what is the monument? He, he truly did not know what this was about. And I did other cities where I was not sure if there was a monument there. I would call in advance to save the mileage, and they weren't sure if there was a monument there or not. Or they said there wasn't, but in fact there was, because I didn't necessarily believe them. And so there's, it's, it's not necessarily the most, I, I, I know what you're saying. I, I understand the, your, your point, but they, they're not necessarily meant, you know, it's just part of the wallpaper. You don't necessarily see it on a day-to-day -day basis. I just wanted to comment on that. The women of the South, the yes. daughters of the Confederacy, not only did they bring home their fathers, their husbands, their sons, their brothers, yes. but they also refurbished and brought back to life Monticello, Mount Vernon, yes. Stratford Hall. Yes. What an amazing yes. testimony. Yes. During and after and still. Very yeah. much so. Uh, are there any at all monuments for black slaves, black soldiers by North or South in Virginia? Any at all? Depicts a black person somehow? I don't, 
claim knowledge of Union monuments. It was not my area. Um, but, but there are references. There are monuments to, to black in, in Norfolk. There's a statue to a uh, black Union soldier. And there is a county, which I can't recall now, but it's, there is a tribute to an individual black Virginian who fought on the Union sign. Um, I know Moses Ezekiel ostensibly placed a black Confederate on the monument at Arlington. There's no direct reference. Okay, thank you. So I understand that there were a lot of uh, mass graves that the Southerners buried um, their dead in mass graves. What relation did you find of monuments to mass graves? Were there, were there, was there always a monument? No, and I, the Petersburg, it's, I wouldn't say it's a mass grave. It's not marked. I, I don't know if that would qualify as a mass grave. I mean, it's, 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 it's reinterments. Um, as far, it's that kind of record keeping taught the lesson to this country that we have to keep records. You know, the graves registration um, uh, units, I mean, that, that's a post-war development because nobody expected this kind of carnage and this inefficiency. We owe them. We owe them. And so I'm sure there's unnoticed, you know, burials out there. Um, but the record-keeping was very, once again, uneven. Lynchburg was very good. Petersburg was, was good. Hollywood was very good. Um, uh, cemeteries in, in the Richmond area were very good. Other areas, after a battle, it's very, uh, you know. What about Fredericksburg? Is there a monument there? Definitely. Mass? The mass graves? No, I wouldn't say it's a mass grave. There's, there are markers there. Pennsylvania, likewise. Another question? Any questions left? Thank you. Uh, just apropos of what the gentleman asked about uh, monuments to, to Negroes, yes. uh, it's not in Virginia, and I haven't been there in a long time, okay. but at Harper's Ferry. Oh, yes. Sure. The uh, first casualty of John yes. Brown's raid was yep. a Negro who uh, was trying to defend the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad property, right. and he was killed by, by the raiders. Right. There was a monument uh, dedicated there by the UDC, UDC yes. which the last time I saw was thoughtfully encased in plywood. So well, you it's could- it's not, it's freestanding, it's there. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah, it's definitely th there. They finally took- Just a few weeks ago. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Hi, thanks very much. Sure. Enjoyed Thank your talk. Thank you. Um, I restore sculpture and monuments yes. in the east, in the north, in the south. Yeah. And I can say when you draw attention to these monuments, oh. uh, the reaction is very strong. Okay. Um, I've restored the Lee Monument on Lee Circle. Yes. I've restored Stonewall Jackson, among other important monuments. And I've been threatened. Oh. I've been shrieked at yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, you would be surprised how strong the right. reaction is. Right. So, right. Just to weigh in on that aspect, yes. it's uh, very frustrating for me because uh, the subject and the material is unimportant. I do the best job I of can. Course. I was born in New York City, so yes. it's immaterial <laughs> to me. <laughs> do the best job I can on all the yeah. sculpture. So okay. it's, it's quite a strong reaction. But oh, yes. I'd say what's been really interesting <coughs> Excuse me. Is that um, 
lot more forest tor uh, foreign tourists and vi yeah. visitors have a fascination yes. in these monuments, yeah. uh, much more than yeah. uh, Americans. The local. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much.